You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Before we do anything else, can we just acknowledge that was really great worship this morning. Aren't we grateful for people who are gifted in song to be able to lead us like that? And thank you for being active participants in that. And so... um, Okay, so that video just introduced us to a set of sermons called All In. If you don't have a book that looks like this, why don't you just raise your hand there where you are. We've got a few guys around that are going to bring a book to you that looks just like this. And so uh, just right there where you are, don't be bashful. Just raise your hand and they will get a book to you. So just keep it up until they get there. So hang tight with that and they will bring you a book. Um, so, so the video introduces to a set of sermons called All In, and it's really more than a set of sermons. It's really the introduction to a two-year generosity initiative for our church family. And we have said from day one of this initiative that the primary goal is that everyone that calls Stonegate home would go on the journey of learning and, and you know, seeing from the Lord, what does it mean to walk by faith? That we would all go on that journey together. And then secondarily, it is about generosity. It is about um, us raising $6 million to do three really important things for our church family. One is the ongoing work of ministry. This is Cultivate Ministries. This is a part of what the generosity over the next two years will go for, um, is to continue the, ongo- the good ongoing work that the Lord's doing here. Secondly, to plant the gospel. This covers our church planting and orphan care endeavors. The generosity over the next two years will go to both of those two things. And thirdly, to put down roots. If you've been here from day one, you know that we have a temporary home in the conference center. So in September of 2018, that's the moment where we are going to be homeless, barring us doing something now. And so we're in that season of of laying out the plan and and getting everything in order for us to be able to make a move out of, of this place, which has been such a great gift from the Lord to us out of this building and into another facility on Highway 287 and Walnut Grove. So the generosity over the next two years will go to support all three of of those very important things for our church family. If you don't have a book yet or you haven't read through the details of that, all of that is in here. Please just take a few minutes to read through this booklet front front to finish. That way you will be completely in the know with all the things that are happening. Um, Now, next week, let me kind of switch tones out and talk about next Sunday, March the 6th. It is one of the climactic moments, really not just in this set of sermons, but really in the history of our church family. Um, Next Sunday, March 6th, is Commitment Sunday. It's the Sunday where we have been wrestling through and trying to figure out what is that number that's going to represent sacrificial, glad-hearted generosity, that one number that will take us to that point of faith, and we're going to make that commitment to Jesus next Sunday, right here in this room, in the 9 o'clock hour and the 11 o'clock hour. So next Sunday is that Sunday that we're going to be doing that. And so it's going to be a huge day for us. It's going to be one of those days that in 20, 30, 40 years, by God's grace, as we look back over this particular Sunday, March 6th, I think we're going to see how the ripple effects of that Sunday have have not only impacted those 20, 30, 40 years, but all eternity. We're going to get to see all of that go down next Sunday. So it's going to be such an important Sunday for us. And so in light of that, I want you just to flip to page 32 in your booklet. Page 32. It gives you a sample of what a commitment card looks like. So if you don't have the commitment card, we handed one out with the little booklets when you got them. But if you don't have um, a commitment card, page 32 will show you two things that I think could be really good tools for you as you're trying to determine what is that one number over the next two years that represents sacrificial, glad-hearted generosity. Part of that is a gift chart. So that's one thing that I think could be really helpful for you. So the gift chart is just showing one way that our church family could get to $6 million over the next two years. 
And so the, the way that I've used that gift chart personally is just to lay that before the Lord and to ask the Lord, where would you want my family in particular to be in terms of that gift chart? Like what is the number that you would want us to be at that would, that would require faith from us, that would require sacrifice for us? What would be that number? And, and the one thing that we have just done is we, we've you know, put that before the Lord and we've said, God, you can surprise us. You, you can say whatever it is that you wanna say, we're gonna be open before you and we're gonna do our best to listen and then obey whatever it is that you say. So that gift chart could be really helpful for you in, in light of that. The second thing is what's down at the bottom, and that is just one way that you could get to a number. So it just kind of is a more systematic way for you to think through the categories of your life. So in the left side, um, you've got kind of your annual giving. So like, what would you normally give in a year? What do you feel like God is calling extra for you? Um, you know, on an annual basis, you would add that up and that would be a year's worth of giving. You would multiply it by two because it's a two-year generosity initiative, not a one-year generosity initiative. So you'd, you'd multiply that by two for the two years. Then you'd consider your stored assets, like what the Lord has already blessed you with that you already have available and, and asking, Lord, what would you want of that in this season? And then you add those things together and that could, that could be a way to get to um, the number for the next two years that's representing sacrificial generosity for you. Um, now, let me just make one quick point here. You don't have to fill out those blanks if those blanks aren't helpful. That's just if they're helpful. The key blank to fill out is that bottom one. That's the two-year, that's the number that's saying, this is the two-year number that I feel like the Lord is asking from, from us that would, that would take us to that point of faith. It's the, the total giving for the next two years. That's the blank that's the most important there. And so now a couple of other quick things and we'll jump into our text. Um, next Sunday is for the adults, our commitment Sunday. But today is for our preschool and children's ministry. If you have kiddos in either of those two ministries, this is their commitment Sunday. And there are such great stories just embedded into what's happening in our children and preschool ministries. Um, so I have a six-year-old Caleb who our first Sunday when we were talking about All In, he meets me out in the foyer and he's like, Dad, I think the Lord wants me to give my NCAA 2013 college football game. And I'm like, buddy... I know you, and that's going to be sacrificial giving for you if you do that. So I'm just like trying to affirm him in that moment. We just had that little moment. And then uh, this week I, I said, Caleb, uh, you mentioned that NCAA 2013 football game. How, how's that going? You still feel like the Lord's asking you to give that? And he got real quiet. Man, Dad, I think some things have changed. <laughs> and I'm just like, that, that is my heart in a six-year-old body right there. And so there's just such great stories of the Lord planting in our kiddos right now that heart of sacrifice and generosity and the Lord teaching them those things. So if you're a parent and you've got children, preschool, you know, children age, man, make sure you're having those sort of conversations. Those are trajectory-setting conversations for our kids. On Wednesday night, our students are going to be committing. So just embedded into all of those things are such great stories happening right now. We're going to capture a video of both of those two things happening, preschool children, so what's happening today, our Wednesday night stuff for our students this week. We're going to show you some of that next week, just so you'll hear some of those stories that the Lord is at work in. And uh, for those who, uh, you know, if you've been here over the last several weeks, you know that we've been talking about Advanced Commitment Night. We made that open to anyone in our church family who wanted to go first in making a commitment. So we did that last Friday night, and we had such a great time together. It's one of those defining moments in our church's history. We got to have that moment of, of committing to that one number together. We got to, you know, celebrate on the land afterwards, pray for what the Lord's going to do there. We're also going to show some footage of that next week. It's just some examples of how the Lord is at work and our people moving them in these sorts of directions. So next Sunday is going to be a really, really great Sunday. So make sure you're here for that. Next Sunday, March the 6th. Okay, we are to Matthew chapter 6. 
So make sure your Bible's out and open there on your lap, Matthew chapter 6. Let me just set the context for us. Matthew 6 is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. It's Jesus' longest recorded sermon. And chapter 6 is right in the middle of that longest recorded sermon, the sermon by Jesus. And Matthew chapter 6 deals primarily, the majority of the chapter deals with how we interact with money and possessions. It's one of the main themes of this particular chapter. And by the time you get to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19... Jesus begins to address what is one of our biggest issues in our life. He begins to address one of the biggest issues in our life, and that big issue is our lost sense of the eternal. It's one of the biggest issues in your life and my life, that lost sense of the eternal. One of your greatest problems and one of my greatest problems is that we so often fall into a ditch, just into a way of seeing our life where we habitually think and act as if heaven is not real. Where we you know, habitually begin to think and act as if this world is all there is. There is no world to come. As if this is all there is, this, this short little life that the Bible describes as a vapor, that that's all there is. So we get to, 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 you know, to working and to thinking and to acting in ways where we think, man, I just gotta eke out whatever I can now because this is all the chances I've got. It's that sort of lost sense of the eternal that is one of your greatest problems and one of my greatest problems. And the Bible over and over and over tries to convince us that that's not true. It tries to give us a sense of the eternal. It tries to embed into our heart and impart into our hearts that this world is not all that there is, that there is a world to come. So you see this throughout the Bible. As if, uh, for instance, 1 Peter and Hebrews, um, they remind us that we are sojourners and exiles. That if you want to think about one of your identities as a child of God, the identity is as a, it's a pilgrim. That this is not your home. You're on a pilgrimage. You're, you're passing through this life, but this is not the, the final destination for you. So, so they call us sojourners, exiles, pilgrims. I, I love how Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says it. It reminds us that our citizenship is not of this world, but it's of the world to come. Our citizenship is in heaven. I mean, think about even how the Bible closes. The Bible closes in Revelation 21 and 22 by wetting our appetite for the world to come. But by just casting vision for, this is what is before you. This is what's to come to you. Your biggest and brightest and best days are still before you. The Bible so often is trying to reorient our heart toward what is to come for us, to try to give us that sense of the eternal in our life. I mean, God is clear in the scriptures that a renewed heavens and a redeemed earth, that's going to be our home. And that is all in the future. It's not in this life. Now, directly applying that to money and possessions, Jesus is showing us in this particular passage that a lost sense of the eternal is one of our greatest problems in how we relate to money and possessions. Let's say that again. Jesus is showing us here in Matthew 6 that one of our greatest problems when it comes to money and possessions is our lost sense of the eternal. Listen to how Randy Alcorn describes this. He says it this way. This should be on the screen for you. He says, I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to our giving is this. Now think about that in your life. What is the greatest, what is the greatest kind of deterrent to, to giving? How would you answer that? Here's his answer. Here's the greatest deterrent to giving. The illusion that earth is our home. 
where we choose to store our treasure depends largely on where we think our home is. Those who think of earth as their real home will naturally want to pile up treasures here. Those who think of heaven as their real home will naturally want to pile up treasure there. It all comes down to this key question. Here's the question. Where's your home? Is it here or is it there? To the Christian, God gives a clear answer. Our home is in heaven. The only question is whether we'll live as if that answer is true. And that's really the question I'm hoping that the Lord will confront you with this morning. Will you live as if your home is really in heaven? Will you live as if the answer to that question is true, that our home is really there, not here? Will you live in that sort of a way? That's where Jesus is taking us. And he takes us there by using three metaphors. In Matthew 6, starting in verse 19, ending in verse 23, or 24, he uses three metaphors. I just want to try to unpack these three metaphors for you. Here's the first metaphor. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one, deal briefly with metaphor two and three. Here's metaphor number one. He uses the metaphor of treasure, of treasure. You see this starting in verse 19. In verse 19, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus uses the imagery of treasure and he says here, there are two things that you can do with treasure. Two things that you can do with money and possessions. Here is option number one. Option number one is you can lay up treasure on earth. That's one thing that you can do with money and possessions. You can lay up treasure on earth. You you see it here. Do not, and this is how Jesus talks about it. Do, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. But that's one of the options. It's not the best option, but it's one of the options. So let me just try to unpack two questions around this idea of laying up treasure on on earth. First question is, what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth? What is he talking about there? So maybe we could just ask the question first, does that mean that, that, you know, Jesus is saying we should not in any way, shape or form have a retirement account. We should not save. We should not have houses, cars. We should not have any of those things. Is that what Jesus means? My answer is no to that. That is not what Jesus means here. I don't think that's the idea. And just to back that, there is proverbial wisdom that the Bible holds up. So proverbial wisdom is like Proverbs chapter six, where the proverb says, hey, will you please look at the ant? The ant stores things away now so that in the winter it will then have something. And it holds it up and says, you should be like the ant. You should think like that in your life. So, so there is proverbial wisdom that is true, that, that the Bible commends. Now, just hear this quick side note. There are moments where the Lord looks at us and says, I don't care what proverbial wisdom is, I want this from you. Please obey me. There's times where that happens. If you need an example of that, look at the rich young ruler in Luke 18. There are moments when obedience to Jesus is going to cut directly against the the grain of of proverbial, proverbial wisdom. But there is proverbial wisdom, and it's generally commended in the Bible. So when you take that proverbial wisdom, and then you put it by what Jesus says here, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, I think it is It is showing us that there's a difference in the way that we can plan and the way that we can save and the way that we can treat our money and possessions. And if I'm trying to define what is that difference, here's the way I would describe it. Proverbial wisdom versus Matthew 6 is showing us that there's a difference between prudent, wise, kingdom-focused planning in our life. 
That, that's one category. Prudent, wise, kingdom-focused, planning, and saving. There's a difference between that and a self-centered, self-absorbed, everything is about me planning that fails to factor in Jesus the King and his kingdom causes. I'm going to say that again. This text is showing us that there's a difference between this side over here that is prudent, wise, kingdom-focused planning and saving, and over here, a self-absorbed, everything ends on me, failing to factor in King Jesus and his kingdom causes. There is a difference between those two things. And it's this sort of saving and planning. Everything's about me. Everything's focused on me. What do I want? How am I going to get, you know, all the joy I can get out of this life now? It's that sort of planning that Jesus is saying is sinful. It's that sort of planning that Jesus is saying in this passage, don't do that. I don't want you to do that. Obedience in this passage is going to rule out that. It can encompass this though, this sort of wise, prudent planning that factors in God, his kingdom, his agendas in the world. So this passage is showing us that when we kind of develop our financial plan and it's all about us, when we develop our little financial kind of plan for the future and it fails to factor in God, his kingdom, his agenda, all of those sorts of things, when we have a financial plan and, and that plan is showing us that, that we are banking on this life being everything, that, that plan that fails to factor in that there is a future life that God is calling us to, that our citizenship is really in heaven. When our financial plan looks like that, it is sin in the Bible. So I think it just provides a great little moment for us just to ask the question, are you living, spending, and saving in such a way that would show evidence that you really believe there is a life to come? Are you living, spending, and saving in such a way where it would show you that you really do believe the best is yet to come, that this world is not all there is, that that's what Jesus is addressing here. Now, the second question about this first option of laying up treasure on earth is why is that option a bad idea? Like, why would Jesus be so serious about saying, don't do that? And it's a really simple answer. He gives us the answer here. The answer is, why would Jesus say, don't store up treasure here? It's because earthly treasures don't last this is the worst thing about earthly treasure is they're temporal. They're going to decay. They're going to devalue and, and you, you, that, be destroyed. That, that's the, the end game of all of our temporal possessions. There's going to be a day where moth and rust destroy them. You just need to, at some point, you just ought to make a trip to a junkyard or a dump and just remind yourself, everything that I look at right now with such deep value, all these earthly money and possessions, all these things, that's where they're headed. That's the future destination of those things. And Jesus is, is just reacquainting our heart to that. They're all heading to that dump. They're all going to that junkyard. All these things that you put so much value on now in the end just aren't gonna be valuable. They're, they're all going to devalue and be destroyed one, one day. So option number one is we can store up treasure on earth. Here is option number two, is you can lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You can lay up treasure in heaven. This is verse 20. Option one, Jesus is against. Option two, Jesus is for. Option one is to your eternal detriment. It's very unwise according to the Bible. Option two is to your eternal benefit. It is called wisdom in the Bible. So let me ask and answer four questions about what does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? What, what does that mean? Four questions. Here's question number one. What does it mean? What, what does Jesus mean when he says, lay up treasure in heaven? So let's take the first phrase. Don't lay up treasure on earth. What does that mean? That, that Jesus is saying, don't, plan and save and spend in such a way where this world is all that you have. 
Don't let your life be a self-absorbed, everything is about you, failing to factor in my kingdom and my causes. Don't do that. That would be sin. If, If that's what he means on one side, when he says on the other, the contrast is this. Rather than do that, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I think that takes us back to the parable of the, of the talents that we talked about, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago. That Jesus is saying, I want you to take what I have given you and I want you to be, I want you to be thinking about how can you invest those into my kingdom causes. I, I want you to be a conduit for me. That I'm going to give things to you that are going to flow through you then to my kingdom causes. I want this to be your life, for you to be this sort of a pass-through, for you to be open-handed with what I entrust to you, intentionally thinking about how you're going to invest it into the best things. So that's part one of what he's saying here when he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But I want you to notice this, that he is not just saying, I want you to be good stewards of what I've entrusted to you. He is saying in this passage, he's incentivizing that. He is saying, I actually want you to lay up treasures in heaven where you get to enjoy those things forever. So do you see that? He's not just saying be a good steward. He's incentivizing our stewardship by saying, when you do that, you are laying up for yourselves money and possessions that you can enjoy for all eternity. He's incentivizing it. So I want you to notice, this is not a call to renounce money and possessions. It is a call to relocate money and possessions in eternity where you enjoy them forever, where they'll actually last. The point of what Jesus is saying here is not renunciation of earthly treasure. The point is accumulation of heavenly treasure. That's what he is urging us toward. He is urging us to use our earthly treasure in such a way where we actually gain heavenly treasure. That's the point that he's making. That's what he is telling us to to get about doing here. That's the question, what does it mean? Now question number two, what are treasures in heaven? And I wanted to just spend a moment kind of unpacking this. What does he mean when he talks about treasure in heaven? So I want you to pay attention to the context, first of all. This is embedded into a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And if you read chapters 5 through 7, you're going to see the idea of rewards come up throughout these three chapters. So let me just give you a couple of uh, examples of this. Where you're going to see that Jesus shows that our experience of heaven later is in part determined by our actions now. Okay, let me just show you a couple examples. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. He's talking about suffering. And in that passage, he says that if you suffer well for Jesus' sake now, you you can actually rejoice and be very glad. And here's the reason. You're gonna be rewarded handsomely later. So he's talking about this idea of reward. You suffer now and you're gonna be rewarded later. In Matthew 6, one through four, he talks about giving. Those who give for Jesus' sake, not for the applause of people, but for Jesus' sake, will be rewarded one day by God. In Matthew chapter six, verse six, and then verse 18, he's talking about prayer and fasting. And he says, those who pray and fast to know more of Jesus, not because they wanna look good in front of people, but to know more of Jesus, it is going to enlarge their experience of heaven later. They're going to be handsomely rewarded for that. Now, let me, let me be clear here. The destination of heaven isn't determined by our actions. The destination of heaven is not determined by our actions, but by the actions of Jesus, right? Our destination of heaven is not determined by our actions, but by the actions of Jesus. But our experience of heaven Not the destination of, but the experience of heaven. Our experience of heaven is in part determined by our actions. How you live now affects your experience of heaven later. 
what you do now impacts your experience of heaven later. So let me just try to, to work through that. For everyone in the room, for every human being, life is linear. We are all on a collision course for one day standing before God. That's going to be happening for everyone alive, every human being. And there's going to be two categories for how that moment before God goes. For people who reject Jesus, for unbelievers, it will be a judgment of condemnation. For people who reject Jesus in this life, when they stand before God someday, they will not experience mercy from God, but they will experience the justice of God. That is so sobering just to say that. For unbelievers, it will be a judgment of condemnation. But for believers, it will be a judgment of commendation. Not of condemnation, but of, con of commendation. For those who have trusted Jesus, here is the great news of the gospel. Jesus stood in your place and he received from God the Father the condemnation that your sin deserved. He endured every last drop of it. He drank to the last drop all of God the Father's anger and fury and wrath over our sin that we deserve. Jesus took it all so that when we are thinking about this moment one day of standing before Jesus, no child of God ought to fear that moment because there is no condemnation left only commendation in that moment. That will be a moment where God the Father looks at the lives of his sons and daughters and rewards them based on their faithfulness. But he's commending them. He's rewarding them. I love how Jonathan Edwards, I think it was him. So I'm gonna attribute this to him with an I think you. I think he did this. But I think it was him who, who gave this image of what treasure or what this commendation is gonna look like and be like in heaven. He said, if you can picture everyone in heaven having a boat. So everyone in heaven gets a boat, but those boats are gonna be various sizes in heaven. Some boats are gonna be smaller than others. Some boats will be larger than others. Some will have little kayaks. Some are gonna have like huge you know, barges that can carry just so much stuff. He's saying, we're all gonna have different sizes of boats and every person's boat is going to be packed full of the cargo of joy. So every person in heaven is gonna feel this. Man, I cannot believe it's this great. Every person's gonna feel that. Every human being will feel that, that moment. Every boat is gonna be packed full of the cargo of joy. But hear me on this. In part, based on how we live and operate now, we're gonna have various sizes of boats that are gonna carry more or less cargo of joy. This is what Jesus is saying here, that, that there is a way that you can live now, things that you can do now that will create a bigger barge so that you can carry more joy. So the feeling of, I can't believe it's this great becomes deeper and wider and bigger for you. Do you see that? He's saying that there is a way that you can live now that will enlarge and enliven your experience of heaven later. Now, he's showing us in this passage that prayer and fasting are one way you can do that. Suffering well for Jesus is one way you can do that. All of these areas of faithfulness are one way that you can create the bigger barge so that your experience of heaven is deeper and wider than you could possibly imagine. But one specific application he is making in Matthew 6 is that when we are generous, when we give of our things now that the Lord entrusts to us, when we give those things back to Jesus, it is in a very concrete way creating a bigger boat to carry more cargo of joy in heaven. He, he's connecting that dot for us. Now, and I think he's doing that for a reason. 
He's doing that because so many of us are missing this link. So many of us are not living with the awareness that every time we are giving to God's kingdom and God's kingdom causes, we are creating a bigger boat to carry more joy, to deepen and enlarge and enliven our ability to experience heaven. He's trying to connect, he's trying to show us that, that when you give generously, you're doing that. You're creating a scenario where you will experience deeper things in the life to come, better things in the life to come. So then the question becomes, well, what is the treasure? What is the treasure we're talking about? Let me just make two comments on that. Number one, if you want to nail it down to the core, the treasure is Jesus. What you are doing in the way that you give and the way that you suffer and the way that we do all of these things, what we are doing in those moments is creating new and deeper and larger capacities to know and experience Jesus. How we live now is creating our capacity for that. Listen to Wayne Grudem describe heaven in this way. He describes it like this. More important than all the physical beauty of the heavenly city, more important than the fellowship we will enjoy with all God's people from all nations and all periods of history, more important than reigning over God's kingdom, more important by far than any of these will be the fact that we will be in the presence of God and enjoying unhindered fellowship with him. That's the main part of heaven. Our greatest joy will be in seeing the Lord himself and in being with the Lord forever. When John speaks of the blessings of the heavenly city, the culmination of those blessings come in this short statement. They shall see his, Jesus's face. They're going to see his face. When we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longings we have ever had to know perfect love, peace, and joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power, glory and beauty. It will all be found in Jesus. As we gaze into the face of our Lord, we will know more fully than ever before that in his presence is fullness of joy and at Jesus' right hand are pleasures forevermore. How you operate now, how you live now, how you give now is creating a bigger, deeper, wider capacity to know that God, to know him. And secondly, so if we want to talk about treasure, Jesus is right at the center of that. But we could make one other statement. That when you think about treasure in, in uh, you know, the life to come, part of what it means to be laying up this treasure is you could put it in three categories, how the Lord will reward us. The category of place, that's John 14, 1 through 4. The category of possessions, that's James 1, 12 and 2 Timothy 4, 8. And the category of power. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. See, one of our greatest problems when we think about heaven is it's super abstract. It's, it's, very, uh, it's very like we're on a cloud, we're all singing. It's, it's very abstract like that. But that's not the picture that we get in the Bible. The, the picture in the Bible that we get of heaven is that it's very earthy. Think, think about the best of what life can be now and sin and Satan being removed from that. The best of what we have of life now with no sin, no Satan, none of the effects of sin. That's a great starting point for what heaven's going to be like one day. But it's earthy. It's got possessions in it. It's going to have, God's going to entrust to people varying degrees of authority and power. 
It's gonna be a place. Like heaven's got all of those things in it. And that's part of the rewards of heaven. See, God is saying in this passage, Matthew 6, that part of what we're doing when we open up our hands and allow what God entrusts to us to flow out of us into his kingdom and his kingdom causes is we're experiencing, or we're you know, enlarging our whole experience of that future moment of how we're gonna deal with possessions, power, place, Jesus. We're enlarging our experience of all of those things for the future. That's what's at stake right now in the way that we deal with money and possessions. Question number three about laying up treasure in heaven. How do we do it? How do we go actually about laying up treasure in heaven? How does that work? You know, and I think in a word or in just a short phrase, I think the way I would answer that is we lay up treasure in heaven through delayed gratification. Through delayed gratification. This passage shows us that it's when we deny ourselves temporary pleasures that are small and momentary. We deny ourselves things that we could have here. And we throw those, we relocate those to eternity so that we can enjoy them for, forever. I, I think that's the idea that, that when we, we take what the Lord's given us now and then we invest those in his kingdom causes in that moment, we are saying, I'm not going to experience these things down and enjoy them now, but I'm going to relocate them to heaven where for forever I'm going to get to experience and enjoy those things. This is what he's talking about when he's encouraging us to lay up treasure in heaven. Now, Paul affirms this in 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to read you a couple of verses here. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 18. This is going to be on the, the screen for you. I just want you to get a sense of like when Paul's thinking about how do you lay up treasure in heaven, I want you to see how Paul says it. Starting at the, the end of verse 18, 1 Timothy 6, Paul says this. They, and he's talking about the rich. And if you're in America living in suburbia, you have like money in, a, in a, an account somewhere. Like you, you're in the category of rich, if that's you. You have a car that you're driving. You, you're in the category of rich. So he says to the rich, they are to do good. This is part of how we lay up treasure. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Now, what does doing good and being rich in good works look like? Here's what it looks like. They are to be generous and ready to share. That's, that's what being rich in good works looks like. They're generous and ready to share. Now, what is being generous and ready to share? What is that gonna do for us? Answer. Thus, verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's saying that when we're generous and ready to share, when, when the things that the Lord entrusts to us pass through us to, to good kingdom causes, when that happens, we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Now, I want you to listen to how Randy Alcorn comments on this. He says, Christians throughout the ages have taken these passage literally and have been far less serious than we are about earthly treasure. And they have been far more serious about heavenly treasure. John Bunyan, he, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, and he wrote that from an English prison cell to which he had been condemned for unlicensed preaching of the gospel. He spent 12 years in prison because he would not say, I'll stop preaching. But he looked at them and said, if you let me out, I'm going to keep preaching. 12 years in prison. And this is how he, John Bunyan, interpreted the words of Christ and Paul. So Matthew 6 and, and 1 Timothy 6. He says it this way, whatever good thing you do for Jesus, if done according to his word, is laid up for you as treasure in chests and coffers 
to be brought out to be rewarded before both men and angels to your eternal comfort. You see that? He's saying that when we give, when, when we suffer well, when we pray and fast, when we do all of these things well, when we, we give generously, when we open up our hands to do that, we are securing for us things in heaven that will be to our eternal comfort. I mean, this is like the treasure principle. The book by Randy Alcorn just summed up in the one phrase. The, the heart of the book is the treasure principle. The one phrase treasure principle goes like this. Here's the hard truth of life. You can't take it with you, your money and possessions, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you. I can't, you can't. When we die, it's all going to nothing, but we can send it on ahead. So that's question three. How do we lay up treasure in heaven? Here's question four. Why should I lay up treasure in heaven? Why should I do that? Why should I be consistently thinking about laying up treasure in heaven? Let me just give you a few of the reasons that this passage alerts us to. Here's one reason Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter six. He tells us that heavenly treasure will last. Earthly treasure will not last, but heavenly treasure will last. Now, I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't say to us, hey, don't worry about treasure. That's not what Jesus says. He's actually saying, I want you to worry about treasure. I want you to be thinking about treasure. I want you to actually get your treasure to the place where it will last forever. That's kind of the whole point of the passage. He's saying, yes, worry about treasure, but make sure you're putting your treasure where, where you can enjoy it forever, where you can experience forever. See, when he warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not just because wealth might be lost. It's because all of our earthly wealth will be lost. That's the issue. So he's saying in this passage, you've got two options. You can either hoard it now and like store it up now and you just know it's gonna be lost or you can send it on ahead. You can lay it up in heaven where you will enjoy it forever. That's the whole kind of idea of the passage. Why would we store up treasure in heaven? Because that's where it's gonna actually last. I mean, Jesus is showing us here that we can trade temporal things that we cannot keep. We can trade those things that we cannot keep to gain eternal things that we can keep forever. That's what he's urging us toward here. Heavenly treasure will last. Here's the second reason that he tells us to, to store up treasure in heaven. He's saying because it makes perfect sense to do that. If heaven is real, if this is not all there is, it makes great sense in all of our life to be thinking really hard about what it looks like to lay up treasure in heaven. You know, in, in the treasure principle, I think if you just want one illustration that summarizes the treasure principle, it's the whole Confederate money uh, analogy. Do you remember that in the book? Here, here's it in a nutshell. He says, picture a man in the Confederate South. The Civil War is going on. All of his money and possessions is in Confederate currency. This is where, what he's trading in. This is what he's living in. It's all in Confederate currency. But he knows that the war is about to be over, that the Confederates are about to lose, that the North is about to win. And in that moment when the war is over, he knows all of his Confederate currency is going to zero in value. It's going to lose every bit of its value. So he just poses the question, if you knew that and you were the Confederate man, what would you do? And he's saying it is logical, it is, per, it is sane to think like this. Yes, we would take what we would need of Confederate currency to kind of keep our life operating and going. But at the same time, we would have the mindset of, we want to get as much of this Confederate currency over into U.S. dollars so that it will be worth something after the war is over. Now, that mentality is what Jesus is, is urging us toward. He's saying, if heaven is real, that should be all of our mentality. He's given us the inside information. There is coming a day where this world, everything is burned. 
Everything goes to nil. All of your money and possessions are gonna be worth absolutely nothing. And heaven is where it's at. We're gonna have that moment where everything trans, you know, transfers over into heavenly currency. And he's saying if heaven is really for real, if it's real, if this world is not all there is, it makes perfect sense to be thinking with this mentality. I wanna get as much of my money now, US dollars now, into eternal currency that will last forever. That, that would be a logical way to think about our lives. So he says, it's logical. And then thirdly, he says, here's the, the third reason why we, we should be thinking about storing up treasure in heaven. He says, because your heart always follows your treasure. Your heart follows your treasure. Look at it in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now he's saying two things in that statement. Thing number one, he is saying, if you wanna know where your heart is and what it really loves, just follow your money. It will show you what your heart really is looking to for life. If you wanna know where your heart is, follow your money. It's gonna show you exactly where your heart is. In that way, money is very exposing to us. It shows us what it is that we really love and what we're really looking to for life. But here, and that's the sobering news about that statement. Here's the great news about that statement though. If you want your heart to be some other place, like if you're looking at where, where your money says your heart is right now and you're like, God, I don't want my heart to be there. Here's the great news. If you want your heart to be some other place, just move your money. Money has the unique ability in our life to pull our heart toward other places. So if you want your heart to be more invested into your church, move your money there. If you want it to be more invested into church planning, move your money there. If you want it to be more invested into orphan care, move your money there. Wherever you want your heart to be invested, wherever you want your heart to be loving and fully in right there, move your money there. And your money has this way of pulling your heart in that direction. Jesus is saying, if you want to know where your heart is, just watch your money. And if you want your heart to be in a new and a different place, I think is where many of us are, he's saying, then move your money into a different place and watch your heart follow that. Those are all reasons why we should lay up treasure in heaven. That's metaphor number one. Let me just briefly comment on metaphor two and three. Metaphor number two is the eye. Look at verses 22 and 23. It's a really odd couple of verses. Uh, uh, verses 22 and 23. I just assume that most of us in here, when we kind of get to that little part in the Bible, we probably just skip over those two verses and get to 24 where we kind of feel a little more at home because it is an awkward couple of verses. Listen to what it says. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, let me illustrate what I think the point of this, um, these two verses are with a parenting example. We have little uh, people in our home, so seven and down, basically. And, uh, it, you know, it's funny when you're dealing with little kids, you can convince them that you have ESP. Man, you, you can like see into the future. You can convince them of that. And here's how you do it. All you have to do if you've got little kids in your home is watch what their eyes are fixed on and you can tell the future. If you just watch what their eye is fixed on, you know where they're about to go and what they're about to get into. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you want to know what's in the future for you, if you want to know what your life is about, what your life is going to be about, all you have to do is look at what your eye is fixed on. This is why he's giving us this warning in these two verses. He's saying, make sure your eye or your heart, is, make sure it's healthy. Healthy in this passage is not, you know, pure. That's not the idea. Healthy in this passage is single that it's singularly set on Jesus. 
unhealthy or bad in this passage is it's duplex. It's got multiple loves, multiple things that it's looking to. And Jesus is warning us, make sure your eye is healthy. Your spiritual health is connected to a healthy eye. And now let's just apply this. Those two verses are right in between two conversations about money and possessions. So it's obvious when Jesus is thinking about, make sure your eye is singular, make sure it's not duplex, make sure it's not Jesus and these things over here. He's talking about money and possessions. He's saying to us, be careful with your heart. Money and possessions has a seductive voice. It is a ruthless competitor for the affection of your heart. I mean, I think in verse 22 and 23, it's the Lord looking at us and saying, no, whatever you do, don't let your heart be seduced by money and possessions. Don't let your eyes be fixed on storing up treasures on this earth. Let your eye be fixed on Jesus and storing up heavenly treasure. This is what he's getting at in those two verses. And then you get to the last metaphor, verse 24. And this is the metaphor of masters. Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. But you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is clarifying for all of us in the room that your heart is only big enough for one throne, for one seat, for one master, for one king. There is no room for God and money to be kings in our hearts. It will always be God or money. There is no room for God and money. It will always be an or. It's God or money. Now look at the word devoted and despised in verse 24. When Jesus, you know, he's saying, I, I want you to, to, you know, be devoted. You're going to be devoted to one. You're going to despise the other. I, I think it would be um, common for many of us to look at that and to think, well, I don't like, I don't de despise Jesus. So surely I wouldn't, I couldn't be devoted to money if, if, and, and, you know, idolizing money and money being on the throne of my heart because I, I don't despise Jesus. I mean, I kind of like Jesus. I mean, I'm here. I'm listening. I'm, I'm here. So I, I want you to notice what the word despise means. The word despise does not just mean that you hate something. It, it can also mean that you just consider something as of little or insignificant value compared to something else. The word despise means that you consider something of little or insignificant value when you compare it to something else. So see, when we put money and possessions on the throne of our heart, it doesn't mean that we're gonna hate God. We can actually still like Jesus. It just means that we're gonna consider Jesus of little value as really insignificant in our life. He's just gonna be kind of this thing over there in our life. And as long as he stays over there and doesn't really affect our pursuit of money and possessions, we'll just coexist with this little God over there all day long. He'll be just fine over there. But that's what happens when money and possessions are, are ruling in our heart. Jesus no longer has a voice into money and possessions in our life. But when Jesus is ruling in our heart, when he is the one that we're devoted to, do you know what it does to money and possessions? Makes them a very little and insignificant value. They're just not that big of a deal. You know what it does when, when Jesus is at the throne of our heart? Do you know what it does to money? It makes money just be money. Not something we're looking to for life. Do you know what it does to possessions when, when we have Jesus at the throne of our heart? It makes possessions just be possessions. We're not looking to them for our life. I mean, I'm praying that for all of us in the room, that God would take us there, that we could live with money and possessions, we could live without money and possessions, but for everybody in the room, we would just make this commitment. We are not going to live for them. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna live for Jesus. So I, I think if you're summarizing verse 24, it's Jesus is saying this, he's clarifying this that he'll either have first place in our hearts or no place in our hearts. 
That's the only two options. First place in our heart or no place in our heart. Now, I just want to close by just having just a personal moment with you, especially in light of next week. When, when I think about my journey with money and possessions and how I have personally related to money and possessions, I've got so much weirdness in me, it's unbelievable when I look back in my past. And this particular passage has been one of the most helpful places in the Bible to, to reshape the way I think about money and possessions. It has been one of those places in the Bible where I feel like the Lord has taught me so much and changed so much of the way that I interact with money and possessions. It has shown me that there is a big difference between being rich and being rich in God. And only one of those matter in the end. It has been one of the key places where the Lord has shown me how interconnected faith is with money and possessions. As soon as we stop believing in eternity, we become hoarders on this earth. What can I save and how can I spend? That becomes our life. We stop storing up treasure on heaven because we just lose sight of and just stop trusting. And there is really a world to come, a life to come for us. This passage has been one of the places that has freed me from pastoral cowardice. In my pastoral life, I have not wanted to talk about money and possessions. And this has been one of the places that has freed me from that pastoral cowardice and led me into pastoral confidence on this issue. I mean, one of the things that I tell, you know, you guys, almost every time that I talk about money and possessions is that I'm not doing this because I want something from you. I'm doing this primarily because I want something for you. And that sentiment is rooted in this text. It's rooted right here in this text. That's why I'm saying that. Here's the reason. I don't think any one of us are going to stand before God one day commendation is happening. The judgment of commendation. The Lord is rewarding us in that day. I don't think any one of us are going to stand there in that day and think, man, I totally got ripped off. Why in the world was I so generous in my temporal earthly life as a little vapor, that life back then? Why was I so generous? I don't think any of us are going to think that. I think the way all of us are going to think is, man, I am so grateful that I opened up my hands to allow the things the Lord entrusted to me to flow through me into his causes so that I could lay this up now where I get to experience for all of eternity. I'm so glad that I did that. I'm so grateful I did that. I wish I would have done it more. I think that's going to be our sentiment when we stand before Jesus someday. And I think that's what Jesus is urging us toward. You know, if, if you could just summarize all of this sermon in one phrase, I would summarize it in a quote by Jim Elliott. He was a missionary who was also martyred in South America. He said it like this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Over the last um, four or five or six months, Laura and I have just been wrestling through what is our generosity going to look like over the next two years? And it has been a wrestling. There's been moments where I've been mad at God. There's been moments where I've been so happy in Jesus. It's been such like a range of emotions as I've walked with God through this over the last several months. And can I tell you the one thing that I've had to consistently preach to my heart over and over and over and over and over again? It's that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no, Rodney, you're, my giving over the next two years, when I just look at it, seems so stupid that it's unbelievable to me in one sense. 
And I have to preach to my heart. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Yeah, it looks stupid if this world is all there is, but it looks really wise if there really is a world to come and we can really lay up treasure in that world. It looks really great then. And can I just tell you what this has done to Laura and I as we've just wrestled with this. We tried to open up our heart to the Lord and just say to the Lord, whatever you want, we're going to obey. So you just let us know. You speak with enough clarity and we're going to do this. We're going to go for the one number that's going to represent sacrificial, glad-hearted generosity over the next two years. God, you have permission to take us to that place of faith. Whatever you say, we're going to do it believing deep down in our heart that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose has created in us a willingness to give more over this next two-year period than we ever have over any season in our life. And it's been scary. It's been frightening. But I think that it makes perfect sense in light of eternity. Let me just close by this quote from A.W. Tozer. He says it this way. The church is constantly being tempted to accept this world as her home. And sometimes the church, you and I, we've listened to the seductive voice, those seductive voices of those who would woo us away and use us for their own ends. But if she, if the church, you and I, if she is wise, she will consider that she stands in the valley between the mountain peaks of eternity past and of eternity to come. We're just in this little vapor right now. The past is gone forever and the present is passing swiftly. And you and I, the church, we would do well to think of the long tomorrow. Let's pray together. We would do well to think of the long tomorrow. To think that this world is not all there is. And I think it would probably be frightening if we could just get a a realizing sense right now of how soon it is that we're going to be walking into the next world, the world that we're really made for. You know, I love what Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, said. He said that the main business of our lives now is to prepare for the life to come. That's the main business of our lives. And when you think about how to prepare for that day, for what's to come, uh, you know, the first thing that we should say about that is you need to trust Jesus. That there needs to be a moment where you have moved your life all in with Jesus. There needs to be a moment where you have turned from your sin and thrown your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, trusting that God the Father will save you because of the perfect work of Jesus for you. And if that has never happened for you, if there's never been a moment where you have pushed your chips all in with Jesus, that is the main and first way that we prepare for the life to come. Now, secondarily, if you are a child of God, you are a son or daughter of God, then now our main business becomes to prepare for that moment of of commendation before the Lord. And for us to live now in a way that will enlarge and enliven our experience of heaven forever. We do that through suffering well. We do that through prayer and fasting. And Jesus makes it clear, Paul makes it clear, we do that through open-handed generosity.
So why don't you just ask the Lord there where you are, God, will you help me believe that heaven is real? That there is more to life than this life, that the biggest, brightest, best days for me, if I'm a son or daughter of God, are to come. God, we're just asking for your help there. God, I need your help there. I so often habitually live and think and act as if this world is all there is, and I don't want to do that. According to Matthew 6, that is foolish to do that. It's sinful to do that. So God, help me. God, help us. Help us to be people of the long tomorrow, to be eternal people. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.